Hey, what's going on? Thanks for checking out Blissful Prospecting. My name is Jason Bay, but you can call me J-Bay. And this podcast is for sales reps and sales teams who love landing big meetings with their prospects, but hate sending cold outreach, whether that be through LinkedIn, email, or making cold calls, spending a ton of time doing that, but not knowing why you're not getting the responses that you'd like. So if that's you, you're definitely in the right place. Today, I'm super excited. We're talking to Nick Capozzi, and we're going to be talking about video, building rapport, and being more personable. So make sure to tune in. So Nick Capozzi has a really interesting background that I'm super excited for you to hear about. And he spent 20 years on cruise ships. So his foray into sales, which he'll talk about more in this episode, was actually like on the cruise ships, if you've never been on a cruise, which I haven't actually been on a big cruise ship. But at the beginning, when they're kind of doing the introductions and getting everything kind of started, is people will kind of give a pitch for like why you should check out their store. So Nick did this for a company called Duty Free, which you've probably seen in airports and like all that other stuff. So he got put on the spot and had to give like a 90 second pitch. And he'd never done this before. And that's how he got into sales. But one of the things he's really, really good at and what he helps companies with now is how to be more personable. So if you think about like on a cold call or if you're doing demo calls or if you're doing discovery calls, especially because a lot of SDRs and BDRs, if you're not doing the whole sales process, a lot of you are doing some discovery or you're at least doing some cold calling. It's like how to be more personable, right? How to be more likable. We're talking about how to build rapport. So like how to look for things on people's LinkedIn profiles and like really build some rapport with someone to get them comfortable. And he's going to be talking about just a lot of different video best practices. So this was a really fun episode for me. and I'm excited for you to check it out. One thing before we get to the episode is if you're looking for a more like repeatable structure for your cold emails and like increasing response rates and really breaking through the clutter, make sure to check out the reply method. It's linked up in the show notes. So whatever you're listening to your podcast on, it should be in the show notes right there where you can either click or copy and paste the link. Or you can go to blissfulprospecting.com and just go to the reply method guide at the top. It's a free guide to help you with structuring your cold outreach message. So make sure to check that out. And let's get to the interview with Nick. So uh, it's been cool getting to you know, kind of know you better over the last couple of conversations. And one thing, if anyone's looked into your stuff before, is they would know about you is that you have a really unique background. <laughs> Right. A little bit. Yeah. I didn't really need to come up with a brand concept when I was going out on my own. So how did you get into doing what you're doing right now? Kind of give us the backstory. You've done a lot of interesting things that I think really help you with the work that you're doing now. Absolutely. So, you know, growing up in Montreal, Canada, there was two things I knew when I was eight or nine years old. One was I wanted to work in radio. That was going to happen. And the other was that I hated winter. So everything I did as a kid was to get me to this one radio program in Toronto. I went to Humber College in Toronto for radio. And I worked in radio and TV for about five years in Canada. And it was fun. No money in it, you know, but it was what I wanted to do from a kid. And then one day I was at a party and a guy said, he was visiting from Miami. He said, can you do that radio thing on a stage? And I said, sure, no problem. The next thing I know, I'm stepping onto a cruise ship in Miami. And I spent the next 20 years in the cruise business. So I actually, I lived at sea. Wow as a live sales presenter. So we would pitch all the duty-free products. So everything from liquor, tobacco, Toblerone, chocolates, the stuff you think about when you're going through the airport. But the real opportunities for us were in Swiss watches, which were duty-free and jewelry. 
people do not realize how big duty free is. And I worked my way up, wound up running a company that ran duty free for all the major cruise lines. And I was not qualified on paper to have that job, but I was so good at this, doing this live presentation, this live pitching, and then training people to do these live presentations. And it was amazing. And then when I left because of burnout, sounds good saying, Hey, I'm going to Stockholm, but it's, you know, Phoenix to LA to Heathrow to Stockholm. I said, you know, what am I going to do? I don't know. And I just started putting these videos out in October on LinkedIn and started to get some work from it. So I guess that's it. Radio to cruise ships to videos on LinkedIn. That's me in a nutshell. So if you could, can you go back to when you first started getting involved with these cruise ships and they asked you to speak on stage? Were you nervous? Were you like, okay, I guess I'll do this? Were you excited about it? Like, what were you feeling? So I actually don't tell a lot of cruise ship stories. I'm afraid to burn bridges, but I can tell this one. This was the first time I ever got on stage. So this was, I literally, I'm on my first ship. And it was three and four day cruises that left out of San Juan, Puerto Rico. So the four day Monday to Thursday was like this junket for, you know, mainland Americans. And on the weekend, they sold it locally to the Puerto Ricans, which was amazing, except no one spoke Spanish on the ship. So we used to do this introduction to talk about what we did at the Welcome Aboard show. So you're live in front of like 1,200 people. And hey, here's what I do. Come see me. And I went to see the cruise director and I said, hey, Dan, what time am I going on tonight? He goes, you can't. It's all Puerto Ricans. Unless you speak Spanish, you can't present. And I said, well, I have to. It was literally my first time. I'm like, I can't miss the first time. The office wants to see the tape of it. Yeah. So he goes, you can't. So I went, I grew up in Montreal, so I speak French. So I went to one of the pursers, one of the customer service people who was from South America. And I said, if I write something, can you translate it phonetically into Spanish for me? And she did. So I spent like, it was a 90 second script. And I literally walked around my tiny little crew cabin for four hours, pounding the script into my head. And I go out and I walk on stage. And it was the first time I was on stage. And all you see is the lights, the two big lights, spotlights coming from either side. And I remember shaking so much. I felt my arm is moving so much. It's obvious, right? And I bust out into, you know, Lo siento por mi poco español. I apologize for, you know, I don't speak very much Spanish. I'm from Canada. I'm learning. Standing ovation. I'm like eight seconds into it and a standing ovation because they were so appreciative that I was trying to learn Spanish and I was doing this in Spanish. Anyway, I walk off the stage and the cruise director's like, what did you bleep? What did you say to them? Write it down for me. I want to know that because I got such a reaction. But after that, I mean, I was 10 foot tall and bulletproof. I thought I was literally going to wet myself on stage. I was so sick with nerves first time up. So That's so interesting, man, because... You know, they say people's like biggest fear is usually public speaking. And then I would maybe put cold calling second, <laughs> you know, up there in that fear list. So this 90 second script, how did you know what you were going to say? Did you have like a formula in your head? Did you have some sort of thing? Because this is something that translates really well, I think, into like your sales pitch and how you talk about what you do in a cold call and your elevator pitch and like all that other stuff. That 90 second pitch, how did you come up with that? What was the thinking behind it, if you remember? So in that one, it was just, what am I doing and what am I trying to engage people with? Because if you step on a cruise ship, right, the first thing is you're blown away with the hardware. The ship looks amazing, mm -hmm. but I'm one of like 10 or 12 or 14 revenue departments. So you're more interested in going to the spa or the casino and spending your money there. How do I pull you into what I do? You know, so I was just trying to bring energy. That was my original thing is how much energy can I bring to a script? But this is where I really learned about writing copy was all those years of the 4,000 guests getting off in Miami, 4,000 guests coming on for the next seven days. 
And because I was a radio guy, I would read, you know, work words around, move them around a little bit, or I'd pause somewhere differently. And if I went from selling eight bottles of Johnny Walker Blue one week and I sold 18 the next, now I had a new default scripting of what I used. And I would play with that every week. And what happened was, you know, eventually the company that I worked for realized that, you know, I had a, a background writing a very little radio copy that they'd say, Nick, here's, here's 30 new products for the season. Go write all the copy for that. So I became the de facto copy guy, but that's what it was. It was reading the body language whenever I spoke, where I paused, you know, and getting the feedback back. You know, that's one of the most interesting things is all those hours I have of live stage presenting is it's all that body language I watch. I don't even know how to translate that. Oh, dude, there's so much I want to dig into with this. Like, if we look back at the radio piece of things, did they teach you anything in radio? And again, for the people listening, I'm trying to paint a picture here of like how this helps with sales, because the correlation is just like, I see so much correlation between this and like the work you're doing now and, you know, cold calling, even writing cold emails, presenting and sales, that sort of thing. Like with radio, I've always been curious did they teach you any of this stuff? Is, is there like a fundamentals of how to be a broadcaster kind of thing? Or do you just kind of observe and learn from people? How does that part work? Yeah, so it was a two-year program, radio broadcast. It wasn't radio TV, it was just radio. And the two key takeaways, basically I spent two years learning how to ad lib. Mm. That was the real key takeaway. But the first two things that they taught you was one, this was day one. If you want to sound like you have 100% energy across the airwaves, you need to bring 150% energy into the microphone, right? That was day one. Day two was there's no money in radio, but thank you for paying your tuition. We appreciate you guys. No, but we had courses. I mean, there was like one on writing sales copy, right? That was my favorite, but I'm not a writer. I'm a talker, but it did give me experience writing. One of the classes was we had to do like an old school radio play, like from the 30s and 40s, like a whole 90 minute produced live action play, you know, and then there was like old school. I mean, this is like late 90s. I was literally cutting the old reels, you know, splicing the, the audio tape together and taping it. We're so spoiled with digital, but just going, working, interning in a radio station and like listening for those pauses and where to actually go and cut the tape and stuff. So it was really interesting. It was a lot of fun. It was a great training ground because it didn't seem like this was going to be an adult job. It felt like kids playing, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, dude, the ad lib part, I'm curious about what were some of the things that you took away from an ad libbing standpoint? Well, when I would work with people on their scripting or live presenting, I'd take someone out of a Starbucks and say, look, I've got a really good job. It's on a cruise ship. You're going to go see the world and you're going to make a lot of money, but I need you to follow scripting and deliver it exactly how I tell you to. And, you know, you're a raw piece of clay that I think would be a great presenter. If you're willing to do that and you're going to buy into, you know, what I'm selling, I'll make you change how, you know, your perception of stuff. And what happened was, was that when I got traction initially in the first couple of months doing this job, I kept asking the guy who ran the company, why am I doing a good job? He goes, because you're following the script. And it blew my mind that no one else was following the script. Maybe I was just this too Canadian kid of, okay, this is what you're telling me to do. Here's this, I'm going to follow the script. But no one would follow the script. But where the ad-libbing came in a couple of years down the line, once I was comfortable with the script, was I wouldn't recite script anymore. Because to me, that becomes a little bit heavy and it doesn't flow. So what I would always do is, is I would take a 60 minute script and basically have it into 80 bullet points. And knowing where that bullet point was, I could talk from a place of knowledge 
about that particular subject, which would make me credible. And then hopefully I would remember to cover all the points. But as I would watch back my own tape, as I did every week, I'd always miss 20% of what I wanted to say, but the 80% usually encompassed enough of the messaging mixed with the right energy, mixed with building rapport, that it would drive traffic to where I wanted them to go. Okay, let's dig into scripts. And this is actually not something we planned on talking about, but I'm glad we kind of got into it because this is such a big part of sales. There's, should we have scripts? No, I don't use scripts. I use talk tracks. I don't use talk tracks. I use bullet points. It's all kind of the same stuff. Like you have something there that is helping you keep on track or reminding you of what to say. And I saw on your LinkedIn, you said, hey, I keep a little thing open with eight bullet points on it. You know, when I'm doing a sales call, I do too. I have a flow and a sequence of things that I want to cover. I don't always go in the same order, but I want to make sure I at least cover these big bullet points. Well, actually, before I dig into that, what is your take on scripts in sales? Should people be using a script? So, you know, my take is, first of all, I come like the most hardcore B2C, right? So I know most of your audience is going to be in the B2B space. So you just keep that in mind as I, you know, with my thoughts and opinions. But I do think having a script when you're starting out is critical because you have to have a North Star. You have to know if you go off track where to be pulled back in, right? And what always frustrated me with people that I was training was, I don't expect you to deliver it the way that I deliver it, but I do expect you to take the time. If you need to know 60 minutes that over three weeks, four weeks, five weeks, you have that memorized. Like, you know, your national anthem up, down, left, right. Because then we we were also on stage. So we needed to be fluid. If I'm stood behind a podium, I don't look credible. I don't look like I'm confident in what I'm talking about. So I would, you know, move all around the stage at all. And it's a huge stage. I mean, this is like for the full productions of the theater shows they would have on cruise ships. That was the key thing. If I wasn't moving around the stage, but I could always come back to that North Star of the script if I got off track or if someone threw me off because they said something in the crowd, right? So I think having that backbone is very critical. I think what people miss when it comes to scripting, at least like what I've heard is I've like kind of jumped in to observe people's Zoom meetings, is that what they think they should say is very often different from maybe what your actual prospect wants to hear, right? So that, and that's another topic for another day, but you know, I think having a North Star is, is super critical. You want to have that leash that you can pull yourself back in on when you need to. But at the same time, I think we just churn stuff out mm-hmm. as opposed to analyzing it. One of the things I was so critical of my staff to do on these ships was you needed to rewatch your own tape. Even though I was watching your tape every week, you needed to watch your own tape. You needed to come and tell me what mistakes you made, what positives you made. And then, you know, we will try and find that medium ground because it also taught me, you know, I'm in Fort Lauderdale at head office. I got someone off the coast of Japan. How serious are they, right, about what they're doing? So is it, are they having results because of their being successful or they're not having results because they need more training or they just, they're mailing it in because they're hanging out in Tokyo, you know? Yeah. It's really interesting. I've never been on a cruise before, like a long distance, you know, kind of cruise. I've been kind of the shorter ones. But you don't really think about how much, like you were delivering like sales coaching to the people giving these pitches. You were watching the game tape. Like people don't, I don't think really think about that. So with scripts then, whatever context it is, I mean, we happen to be talking about, you know, a sales context in this case. And, you know, I think we could talk about phone and cold calling and that sort of stuff. But is the goal to sound less scripted? Like when you're delivering something or is it to like understand what you're saying better so that you can ad lib more? 
Where do you find that balance? Should there be things that you say exactly word for word that you've like figured out like, hey, this works. I'm going to need to deliver basically 99% of these three sentences every time because it works. And I need to do that in a way that doesn't sound scripted. Like, how do you think about that part? So that's great. So there was one thing that we always did, and I will totally acknowledge Shelby Hastings Rojas for teaching me this. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, everyone's got a pencil. I want you to go ahead and write down my name. It's Nick, N-I-C-K, pause. Did everyone write it down? And you wait until they look down and would write your name or whatever the piece of information that you wanted them to remember was. So to properly answer your question, sorry, man, I have so many different tangents I could go off here just talking with you right now. I think the best way to look at it is that I needed to ad lib because I needed to build rapport with people quickly. You would get on the ship, you would have a million distractions. I needed to ad lib with J-Bay. I needed to find something with J-Bay. Oh, you like hiking, J-Bay? Oh, you live in the Pacific Northwest. You love going out into the mountain. Where do you hike? Interesting. Do you camp overnight? Right. So that type of ad-libbing from a sales perspective, I wanted them to follow the script, but also be comfortable enough with it that they could make it their own. Hopefully that answers what you asked. Yeah. So it's a balance. Then it sounds like just kind of with everything. And I think the underrated part of what you're saying, though, is the you need to know this thing inside and out. I'm wondering, you know, how many people listening to this? Could you do your cold call without your script? Like, could you do it? You know, and it might be a little bit rocky, but it's kind of good to practice like that, at least in a role play, you know, kind of setting where you know inside and out, because once you know that thing, it's exactly like you talked about. And a cold call is a little bit harder to build rapport with. (laughs) You really kind of need to get the first part of it out of the way. But if I don't really understand and know what I'm going to say, I can't really listen into that person's tone. And we talked about some of this before around this kind of mirroring concept. And I've gone back and forth on mirroring. And I'm actually much more open to that idea, depending on like what mirroring is, because it seems to be different for everyone that shares it with me. But like just being able to kind of match the other person's tone a little bit in the speed of their delivery and being able to be like, you know what, like I'm cold calling Nick right now based on how he's interacting with me in these first 15, 20 seconds. What mood is Nick in? (laughs) Right. You know, do I need to keep it short, sweet to the point? Is this someone that I can, you know, kind of josh with, you know, back and forth, you know, kind of thing? You looked like you were going to say something. No, I was going to say we're doing it right now. You and I are mirroring each other right now. No question. Yeah. We're talking at the same pace. We're talking at the same tempo. Whether we're doing it consciously or subconsciously, it's happening right now. Well, you know what's really interesting? This subconscious piece of it, too. There's this book called You're Not Listening. Okay. Ironically, my wife had me me read it. It's a book on listening, though, and it goes into the science of listening. And when people feel understood and really feel like the other person's listening to them and they're having that back and forth, literally, they've analyzed their brainwaves, dude, and their brainwaves are like more in sync with each other, dude. Interesting. (laughs) So like when you're in sync with someone like, hey, I feel out of sync when people say that literally you're out of sync with someone when you're not really listening and tuning in and the mirroring thing. I think the issue I had with it is that. It feels deceptive to me when you say you need to mirror that person. So if they use a Southern twang, you need to have a Southern twang. That was kind of the thing I grew up with in the sales world. I'm like, well, let's kind of step back a little bit. I think mirroring is really, that will happen if you're in sync with the person. If you're like really paying attention to this person and their body language, or if you're calling them like their tonality and the speed of their delivery and like really trying to read between the lines of what they're saying, you're going to be in sync with it. You're going to mirror them pretty naturally. You're not going to have to think about it too much if you're really, really paying attention to them. What do you think? 
I love that take on it. That's fantastic. Another thing I found that's interesting, you and I are both taking notes because the conversation, you know, as, as it goes on, there's more ideas being spawned. That's one of the ways that I tether myself because I can also just be a often thought and thinking about stuff. So I, I have to bring myself back and, and constantly write notes, but we were both doing it at the same time, which I also noticed and I thought was interesting. So I did. This would be a terrible interview if I didn't write down some bullet points, dude. We would just go all over the place. Oh yeah. But you know how many people that I talk to that don't? And that's so key, yeah. right? Because that's another thing when I'm doing a demo or I'm pitching someone, I'm listening to it, their tone. I'm listening to all that, but I'm also taking notes every chance that I can to make sure that if they do ask a question, but I'm in the middle of something that I can come back to it. And I find people are just, they shoot from the hip a lot. And I think you need to look at this as like artisanal. Presenting is a craft, right? And if it's a demo for a piece of software, it's still a craft, right? How do you talk? How do you talk to people? Super interesting though, quick rabbit hole. Cause you said, you know, Southern Twang, you and I touched on this before we started the podcast today, but that was one of the things because I had such a homogenized crowd of Americans on a cruise ship. They were from everywhere, from Des Moines to Albuquerque to Burlington, Vermont. And I would catch myself, and it still happens sometimes. If I was talking to someone from New York, I would sound a, just a touch, just a little bit more New York. And if I was talking to someone maybe from the South or from Texas, I might say y'all, right? I live in Arizona, so I, we do say y'all occasionally. So it wasn't intentional, but when I caught myself doing it two or three seconds in, I would stop because I was concerned that they would take it as me trying to purposely mirror them. But the point is, I would always go there subconsciously first anyway. Well, I think that's a really interesting way to make the point, actually, because, I mean, there, again, there is a balance with this, but it's no different than like when you were little and you had friends. One thing I always looked forward to was hanging out with my cousin, Stephen, who was the same age as me, but he lived three hours away. Right. And he went to a bigger school and all this other stuff where I happened to move from. Well, anytime we'd go to hang out, he'd have all these new funny sayings that he would say with his friends. And then I had stuff and then we'd share it. We'd learn like new things to say, like that's ratchet or whatever we were saying back then. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, that's mirroring yeah. right there. Like you feel connected, right. more connected to the people around you when you talk in a very similar way, too. And, and on a very micro level that I think that's what you're trying to accomplish, essentially, when you mirror during a cold call or, you know, a sales call is like really, really paying attention to that. And I want to get into this because it's like another big thing that you do extremely well, in my opinion, is like you said, treat it like a craft. And I want to talk about that sales call for someone that hasn't really treated it like a craft, let's say. What are some of the things they should be thinking about that are really like this skill-based kind of art of selling what are some of the things they should be thinking about when they do like a Zoom call with a prospect if they're kind of starting from scratch and never really looked at like, how can I get better at this outside of I need to close better or objection handle, like more of like the more soft skills, you know, part of the approach. I think if you haven't, if you haven't, I mean, if you're really from kind of the beginning, the focus I would have at the beginning is on rapport building. And I know in the B2B space, you know, people are like, wow, rapport building. I don't know if that actually works. Well, if you call someone from Chicago and you're like, hey, how's the weather, you know, in the middle of winter, are you really getting traction and building rapport? But I think if you're going to look at this as a craft. Is, Sorry to cut you off. In your opinion, is that even rapport though? Well, it's the concept of I'm fishing for it. I'm going to throw a line into the water, but I'm not using the right bait. Yeah. Right. Okay. I'm not having the right discussion. Right. I haven't gone through the profile and found talking points or, mm -hmm. you know, when you and I have talked before, you know, yeah, I understand you live in Texas, some of your hobbies, some of the things that interest you, but that's genuine on my part. What was interesting was, was that a lot of my 
crew was not American or Canadian. They were Serbian and South African and Colombian. So I'm trying to teach someone from Belgrade how to build rapport and have a conversation with Diane from Eau Claire, Wisconsin, right? How do you connect those things? But back to the craft question, after really thinking about rapport building, which is conversation, getting to know people, if that isn't something that's appealing to you, maybe you're not in the right space. With that said, knowing your product that's how I can tell how serious people are. If you if you haven't taken the time to know your product, and you know, listen, I've faked it till I made it. But if I have something, if I have a product, and it's here's the manual on it, well, you should know that manual up, down, left, right. You know, it's same with your script. You need to know it so that you can reference it when necessary. And I think if you're going to take on anything as a craft, whether it's you know one of my kids is outside trying to learn how to skateboard, are you serious about it? Is this something you really want to do? Are you in sales? Are you a BDR right now because this is where you think you should be or you like the idea of making money? Or is this, I want to move up, I want to have a career? Then I think you start thinking about craftsmanship. I think the biggest thing people miss is just how they talk, the tempo, the pace. It's okay to be excited. It's okay to get excited about things, right? You know, I always liken it to what are some of the best conversations you've had? They're usually when you're standing, right? Maybe you, you went to a concert and now your friends are all outside shooting the breeze, and but you're all standing up and having a conversation, right? How are you talking to those people in that moment? And then because you know the product knowledge so well, how can you just seamlessly, you're still talking to your friends, right? Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. I may have gone down a tangent there. I apologize. No, all of this is great. Let's dig into the rapport piece. Yeah. So I am 100% agreement with you there where I think people think rapport is overrated because a challenger sales said that the relationship builder is not the strongest, you know, salesperson. And I think people take it too far where there's like literally no rapport with a prospect. There's no personal connection at all. I see so many demo calls like that. I hear so many sales calls. I listen to a lot of cold calls too, where there's just no connection, you know, with a person at all. And I'm a firm believer people buy with emotion and justify with logic. I mean, they've proven a lot of that just through science and psychology and behavioral science, especially. So the rapport piece, I think, is hugely important. How do we build rapport? (laughs) You know, because, again, that's a topic I don't think that, like, a rep gets trained on when they get hired, at least in the B2B space. It's not very common. How do you build rapport? And I think because people are afraid of it because they think, I'm going to quote Andy Paul, salespeople are professional interrupters, right? So I think there, again, there's that hesitation. The way I look at building rapport from a B2B point of view is that if I'm trying to build rapport with the person on the other end, it's because there's 10 products that they're looking at and I'm trying to get into the top three. I want an ally on that side. It's the reality of the situation. And I think, you know, if it comes natural to you, rapport building, because you have a genuine interest in people, you can accelerate it very quickly. But one of the things I, I think is that we forget we're really selling into like 20, 25 major U.S. cities, right? Denver, Seattle. But what do you know about those cities? What conversations can you have about those cities, right? The other thing I do, and I do it religiously, is I always look at someone's LinkedIn profile before I get on a call with them. And I'm looking at where are they from? Where do they go to school? What professional accreditations have they thought enough about that they've put it on their LinkedIn? Who are they following on LinkedIn? And even, you know, I was talking about this the other day, but there's so many of those three-day, eight-hour courses or eight-week, two-hour courses, you know, on contract negotiation from whatever university. Man, I love that you took it, Jay Bay. How was it? 
was the the best takeaway for you? What was the key thing? What have you used the most out of that, right? And I think if you look at it as what questions would I ask of someone that I'm actually interested in having a dog with, whatever the motivation is, whether it's personal or whether it's business, still want to have a conversation with you. What am I trying to pull out? So you're in Austin. So let's say that I saw that maybe you played soccer in college and you're in Austin. One of the first things I'd be talking about is, wow, Major League Soccer's got that new Austin team that's coming out next year. I heard they're building that stadium in North Central downtown. That's going to be really cool, right? But if you're a soccer guy and you got a new team coming to town, very likely you're going to take that and run with it, right? This is such a tiny detail. I think that's so important. I mean, just doing a quick Google search on the city oh, yeah. is will give you so much more than, oh, hey, I saw you're in Austin. Because you're going a step deeper where it's like, if you lived in Austin, you would know we had a snow day two days ago and it does not snow ever. Interesting. That's an interesting conversation. Start, hey, did you guys go out and play in the snow? You know, if the person had kids, hey, was school canceled yesterday because of the snow? There's so many little things like that. You make up a really good point, too. I never really thought about the fact that everyone I talk to is living in one of like 20 or 25 major cities. Right. There's a lot of stuff going on that's like local to that city that's pretty easy to find with a quick Google search. What's going on in Austin, Texas, you know? And it can be what's going on, right? Maybe you're in the festivals. For me, it was always food. I always tied it back to food. What's the one thing I got to eat in Austin? What's the one, Yeah. you know, because people always love talking about food. And I think this is something that maybe some people miss. but Again, as a Canadian going on a cruise ship, and now I have a horde of people coming at me and they're from all 50 states. I realized very quickly after their family and their loved ones and themselves, Americans love to talk about where they're from. It's very tribal, right? You wear your colors. I'm wearing my, you know, University of Texas Longhorns burnt orange. That's my color. And again, I tie it back in a training for someone from Serbia and they're like, why do they wear the colors? I don't understand. <laughs> Well, you know, it's very regionalized, right? So the minute you cross the border between Wisconsin and Minnesota, it's Packers or Vikings. There is no in-between, right? I mean, literally, there's an imaginary line in the grass and you step over it and you change allegiances. So, you know, we forget about that. So what do you know about food in the Twin Cities? Have you been to Minneapolis? You know, how did the Vikings do? And there's so many things in people's profiles. And you know what? One out of five people I talk to, they're not interested. They want to get right into the conference. Great. No problem. Still happy to smoothly transition into that. But I've had conversations where I've sold people where the demo wound up being 80% about a particular city or event or whatever. And I'm like, okay, let's get through the demo. And they're like, okay, great. This is great. Let's move it on. What's the next meeting? Yeah. And you also talk about something, you know, finding the Easter eggs in your prospects LinkedIn profile. Is that kind of what you were talking about around the work experience, the credit accreditations, the recommendations, whatever it might be? Yeah, exactly. And here's the one I think people miss the most, the mutual connections. Mm -hmm. Because if someone is genuinely your mutual connection, and wow, I was not expecting JBase connected to that person as well. JB, do you actually know so-and-so? And sometimes it's, I think we're just connected on LinkedIn. I have met people that worked across the country with relatives and you want an ally in a second, find a mutual connection that way. That's a game changer. So I'm always looking where they're located, professional accreditations, who they're following, where they've worked, who they're connected to. But again, the connected one, people, oh, they're like, oh, I have a hundred mutual connections. It must be all industry people, right? Yeah. No, I love that one, man. Good stuff there. So you said how you talk. This is the other thing I want to talk to you about here. You mentioned tempo, pace, that sort of stuff. How deliberate are you with tempo and pace? It's no different than what I did there with that pause. How deliberate are you with that during a sales interaction? 
So what's interesting is that for me, it's like so ingrained that I don't even think about it. Mm-hmm. But when I'm talking to someone, the real easy ones are when people just have the same tempo and the same pace throughout the same conversation. Because either they're a little bit nervous and they want to make sure they get everything out. And also they'll talk a lot because they're afraid that if I don't say the right thing, well, this person bought from me last. Well, what just happened? Everything's the same. The tone is the same. Everything's, mon- you know, you're not hooked. Everything I used to, you know, teach people about for the live stage presenting is the same thing. It just, it's even easier in the little Zoom box is, you know, I used to teach them when you pause, when I'm going to say something, I'm going to pause something really important. I'm going to pause and I'd make them count to two. And that two seconds would feel forever. I mean, you want to gut people, make them stand in front of 500 people for two seconds and not say anything. Well, you would literally see the people in the crowd lean in, waiting to hear what was heard. Or building to a reveal. If I've got something really important to tell you, like we've been talking about this for 15 minutes to get to this point, how do you reveal into that, right? Whether it's the next slide, whether it's the pace of your conversation, but there is no doubt and there's you know all kinds of data that supports this, but changing the pace of the tempo of how you're talking, the pace, the cadence, it throws people off guard, right? They got to, oh, hold on, let me try and pick it. Even if you think of a newscaster, they sound great, but it is very monotone. Right. You do kind of tune it out. But if you're listening to someone on Clubhouse, all those different voices coming at different paces and stuff, it's interesting. It pulls you in. Or someone like Howard Stern that's just a you know master of their craft, you know, that's like really emphasized and certain, you know, other stuff. Looks like you have some opinions on him. <laughs> well, no, you know what I was gonna say is, you know, I've listened to different points. When he got big was when I was in school for radio. But I just have so much respect for going against the norm. That's what, to me, you know, he really did was he just did what everyone else was afraid to do. And, you know, that's what I'm trying to do. So many people are afraid to put videos of themselves up on LinkedIn. That's what I'm trying to do. If everyone else is afraid to do it and I'm not, does that give me a distinct advantage? I'm not trying to draw a parallel between myself and Mr. Stern, but. No, I mean, you're totally right. And I always talk about, you know, what's the user experience like for the person receiving your cold call? And what's it like when they listen to other people? Because most salespeople... Hey, this is Jason with Blissful Prospecting. Nick, how you doing? I'm great. Well, I'm calling for this reason. And we do this and we do that. It's it's all monotone. Like you said, there's no pauses. There's no emphasis. And I always go back to what I learned going door to door, you know, selling house painting services. I can still remember the script. We would overemphasize certain stuff because when you say it really fast, people don't know what you're saying. So I'd say, hey, my name is Jason. I'm a student at Oregon State University. And I was coming by because I work with College Works Painting. We're actually going to be painting a bunch of houses this summer. Did you think about ever uh, getting the peeling paint fixed up there on the fascia board? You know, and there was like lots of pauses. There was a lot of emphasis on certain words. And this is something I'm personally working on with teaching around cold calls, because that's the thing that people struggle with. It's like they finally get someone on the phone. It's like they feel like they have to get it out as soon as possible. Otherwise, the person might hang up. Whereas what you're saying, if you really visualize giving a speech in front of 500 people, you know, the most successful speakers think of, you know, anyone that's given a great TED talk or whatever it might be. I mean, there's so many pauses in there and it almost is like, it's that piece of charisma. I think that's like really hard to define. It's this person speaking. They don't need to rush it. They don't feel the need to rush it. No, you're hundred percent right because they are in control of the stage. They're in control of the microphone. They are in control of the conversation, right? There's a swagger element to it. And I think that's a lot of like the young BDRs, that I've had conversations with or or SDRs is it's not the confidence, it's not the lack of confidence. It's not the lack of product knowledge. It's 
and there's a swagger element to being good at sales, right? There's a, I believe in myself, a confidence, not a, but a confidence that if there's a place to fake it, you make it right. Cause the other thing too, is people buy from people they like, but people also buy from people that they respect. I'm a sucker for sales calls, especially guys who door knock guys and girls who door knock. I will take everyone who door knocks and I'll be like, what you got? Tell me what you got. I'm interested. I have given cards to people who've come and knocked on my door. I'm like, we should have a conversation if they've got confidence in, in themselves or what they're talking about. But the key thing here is, let's just say you're not confident. If you know your script and you know your product, you will be confident in that. At least you know that. And that can short-term bridge the gap until you're confident selling it yourself. Yeah. God, man, I could not emphasize that enough. If you don't know about the industry because you're fresh out of college and it wasn't something that you studied, like... Most of these companies that these people are working for, they'll pay for, you know, they give you an allowance to pay for courses and like all this other stuff. Go buy a course on lynda.com or Udemy or something that just talks to people about your industry or a course that's for the personas, you know, that you're reaching out to. Or just a freaking business course that talks to you a little bit more about the inner workings of a business. I mean, there's so much to that. Confidence is such a weird thing. I mean, that's something we could spend a whole hour talking about there. But essentially what I'm taking from you is like really, really knowing your stuff inside and out so that you can be a little bit more in the moment is it's like 80% of it right there. Yeah, that's pretty much it, man. I've said it a couple of times. I would sit through my people's tapes and if they didn't know their stuff, there's a difference between making mistakes. I could tell when they did. I watched enough VHS tapes over the years. Yeah. That's how well, that's how long ago I started doing it. But I, I knew if they had it or if they didn't. And if they didn't, I would say, are you serious? Because if you're not serious, I'll put someone else on that ship who is serious. Right? Yeah. Dude, this has been awesome, dude. We got to roll. So where's the best place to connect with you? Can you let people know a little bit more about what you're doing at your company and how they can connect with and follow you? Absolutely. So uh, Nick Capozzi on LinkedIn, that's the best place to, to follow me. I'd love for you to connect with me if you want to have a conversation. I've got a terrible website, which is a work in progress called salespitching.com. But now LinkedIn is where I spend a lot of my time. So I usually post content a couple times a week. It's usually video based. So I'd love to have uh, anyone drop in and say, hey. Yeah, and that's linked up in the show notes as well. So make sure to check it. I definitely recommend following Nick. He's got a lot of good stuff on his LinkedIn and sales pitching, dude. How much did that domain cost? That's quite the grab. <laughs> $9.99 a year. I picked it up in June. I'm like, how is sales pitching available? How is that? Yeah. <laughs> how did, how, wait a minute. It's great having you on, man. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. All right. That was a fun episode. One of the things that I really enjoy with Nick and talking to him is he's a really great listener. You know, I could tell if I was on a cruise, I would definitely buy something from Nick. <laughs> But particularly, I think rapport is a super underrated topic because a lot of people talk about, should you build a relationship with a client? Should you not? I mean, Challenger Sale kind of showed that the challenger profile was more important than the relationship builder. And I think that people have kind of look at rapport now like it's not necessary. It definitely is, though. For you to connect and get someone to really open up to you, there needs to be a level of rapport. So I love that part of it. Thanks for tuning in to the episode today. We'll see you in the next one. <laughs>